2 Samuel at chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 7 through 12. And then I'm going to ask Bill Miller if he would lead us in prayer for God's blessing. 2 Samuel 15 at verse 7. And it came to pass at the end of four years that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto Jehovah in Hebron. For thy servant vowed a vow while I abode in Geshur in Syria, saying, If Jehovah shall indeed bring me again to Jerusalem, then I will serve Jehovah. And the king said unto him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men out of Jerusalem that were invited and went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city, even from Gilo, while he was offering the sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. Let us pray. We have been looking over the last few weeks or more after David's sin with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. We have been looking at the repercussions, if you will, from that when 
Nathan came unto David and he pronounced these words after he had, David had been brought to confession of his sin. Nonetheless, he brought these words from God to King David. Words such as that in verse 10 of chapter 12. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thy house because thou hast despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith Jehovah, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. God said, I will raise up evil out of thine own house. We heard something in Sunday school at the beginning of our class time again and more than once I believe about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility even in something as seemingly or apparently trivial as a seat belt. Nonetheless we see there even in that and hopefully that reminds us that we have this matter before us continually the matter of God's sovereignty in all things. And yet, in the responsibility of man, God said, I will raise up evil out of thine own house. And of course, we've been seeing, as I've said over the last few weeks, the wickedness of Amnon in seducing, raping, I should say, his half-sister Tamar. We've seen the terrible reaction and response of the vengeance of Absalom. And the sword was raised up. God said, in effect, he would raise up a sword and he would raise up evil out of David's own house. He would do it. Well then, were Amnon and Absalom yet to be held accountable, yet to be counted guilty for these terrible, wicked things? Had not God ordained these things in order to chastise that man after his own heart, David? How then can they be held accountable? How can Amnon be held accountable? When God himself said, I will raise up evil out of the house of David. How can Absalom be held accountable? When God said, I will raise up a sword against your house. Can they be held accountable? Of course, we know that the answer is yes. Not only they can be, but they shall be. They were held accountable. One man put it, I thought, very well, this issue, when he said, God ordained it and you are guilty for doing it. It is a mystery, but a mystery is not irrational, only insoluble. And you remember the illustrations that we've heard over the years, the, the God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, like like two cords or two ropes hanging from heaven. They're both from God. Or they're two parallel lines that Spurgeon speaks about that don't come together. They're insoluble for our finite, puny minds. But they come together 
at God's throne. And that's really what this man has been saying. This mystery is not irrational, it's only insoluble, and where we cannot explain, we can nevertheless adore. But the scriptures bring this out too, clearly do they not, especially when we listen to Peter's sermon in Acts 2. You remember how that he was pronouncing the guilt of these people about having crucified the Lord of glory. But he says to them, pointing out that it was God's sovereignty, it was by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, yet you crucified and slew the Lord of glory. You're responsible, and yet it was of God's sovereign will. And these things dangle, these parallel lines flow along. And they are mysteries, how these things can be, and yet by God's grace, and the leading of the indwelling Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit indwelling his people, we receive these truths, even though we can't explain them and struggle maybe to understand them. But God's sovereignty and, and man's responsibility or his accountability are both taught in the word of God. We've been seeing also the pomp as, as we began this chapter 15, we've seen the pomp, the display of Absalom, so different from his father. You remember his father dancing before the ark, even to the, to, and received the disdain of his wife, Michal, for dancing in an ephod before the ark, barefoot and so on, half clad. And yet here is Absalom, this pomp and ceremony so different from his father. But Samuel had pronounced this very thing, had he not? When the people, back in 1 Samuel, and I believe in the seventh chapter, when the people demanded a king, Samuel's sons, Joel and Abijah, they were not any better than the sons of Eli. And the people came and, and sat because Samuel was old and they said, we don't want them to <laughs> take your place when you die. Give us a king. And God told Samuel that they haven't rejected you, but they've rejected me, their God. Give them what they want. And Samuel pronounced what that king was going to be like. He was going to take their sons for his servants and his soldiers and, and the makers, the fabricators of chariots and weapons of war so that this king that you've asked for will have all this pomp and all this ceremony. We'll hear this promise through Samuel is being duplicated again as Absalom comes uh, gathering himself in to the people with all this pomp. And ceremony. This is, this is something, I can't help but notice this at any rate. This is something of the difference that we see between the pomp of the Bishop of Rome, as he's called sometimes. The difference between him who calls himself the vicar of Christ and the true vicar of Christ. The difference between those two. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit we read in scripture, we know in our own hearts, the Holy Spirit, the true vicar of Christ, speaks not of himself, 
but of another, capital A. He speaks of another. And yet the great pretender in Rome stands up and speaks of himself more often than not. Speaks of himself, speaks of his church, the only church. Speaks of its saints. Speaks of the fathers and their pronouncement. On and on, ad nauseum. Seldom speaking of Christ, the true head of the church. That huge difference between that pretended vicar and the true vicar of Christ. Well, we see in these verses that I've read in your hearing, 7 through 11, we see in here a religious hypocrisy. The religious hypocrisy of Absalom. And it almost seems like that he's intending to revive the kingdom with himself being king. He's going to revive the kingdom as we already pointed out that he's, he's going back to the pomp and ceremony of Saul and of those promised kings like other nations and so on. He's going to initiate a revival with himself being the head of that. And I couldn't help but at least imagine Absalom as being something of a prototype of revivalists, of so many fundamental evangelists, and so on. But he tells his father David that he wants to go and pay a vow. He had made a vow, he claims, when he was in Geisha, in Syria, when he was with his grandfather, he made a vow that if God would bring him back, that he would pay that vow. So he wants to go pay that vow, and he's telling his father, asking his father to allow him to go to Hebron. Well, you remember that Hebron was the place where David was anointed king at the first over Judah before he was anointed king several years later over the entirety of Israel. It was a place, a royal place you might say, in the minds and the memories of the people where their king David was anointed, was appointed king over them at the first. So there's some wiles involved here. There's some cleverness in Absalom's choice of a place he wants to go pay that vow in Hebron. Good choice, Absalom. Perhaps this is a little like, and I think it is a little like, somebody going to a place like Liberty University to announce their candidacy for president of the United States. They're, they're embracing a religious cover. Absalom is embracing a religious covering here. He wants to pay his vow. Good choice. Good choice. Absalom was a religious pretender. I remember a, a little pamphlet I read when the Lord was drawing me to himself, and the title of that was Religious But Lost. People, as was mentioned this morning in Sunday school again, can be religious and still lost. Religious but lost. There are possessors 
and then there are simply professors of religion. There are believers, and there are make-believers. Absalom was a make-believer. Absalom's profession of faith was bogus. Even while he was offering sacrifices, it may sound like the text is saying that Ahithophel was offering sacrifices in verse 12, but the, the intention is to speak of Absalom sending for Ahithophel while Absalom was making sacrifices. He's engaged in religious worship, supposedly. He's pretending to religious worship. And yet, even during that, even in the midst of that, while he was offering sacrifices, we're told, he sent for Ahithophel. He was minding his choice for a right-hand man. He was minding his choice for a right-hand man while pretending to mind the worship of God. He was really, in other words, minding his own business and not God's business. He was a pretender. He was a make-believer. He was religious. Not really, but he was pretending to be religious. But he was lost. Absalom, I think a prototype of much that goes on in the visible church today under the titles of easy believism and so on. You've heard of that, I'm sure. But here Absalom is doing this with this covering, this guise of worshiping God, thinking to use godliness, as Paul states it in Timothy, thinking to use godliness as a means of gain. He claimed to have vowed a vow. And really, he was taking God's name in vain. In verse 8, we read that he said he vowed a vow. If Jehovah, taking the name of Jehovah, he said in the seventh verse, I have vowed unto Jehovah. Taking God's name in vain. We often think, and perhaps many of us for years thought, taking God's name in vain, that's using it for a swear word or a curse. There are many ways of taking God's name in vain. You know what nominal Christianity is? That simply means Christian in name only. Naming the name of Christ when you don't know him, that is taking God's name, Christ's name in vain. Absalom was taking God's name in vain when he said, I have vowed a vow unto Jehovah. I want to go and pay my vow to Jehovah. He's taking God's name in vain. He used God's name in vain or carelessly saying these things. You remember others that did such a thing, do you not? That used the name of the Lord in vain? You remember in Matthew those, those words that should cause us to shudder when we read them again and again in Matthew 7? Those that came to Christ and said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy by thy name? And by thy name cast out demons? And by thy name do many mighty works? Taking the name of the Lord in vain. They didn't know him. And that becomes clear when Christ says, I never knew you. Depart from me. I never knew you. 
And he could have said, you have been taking my name in vain. I never even knew you. There's another occasion of that sort of thing in Acts. If you want to turn there, you don't need to, but in Acts 19, it's very interesting and enlightening. Talking about the preaching of Paul and so on, and we read in the 14th verse of Acts 19, and there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew, a chief priest, who did this. In other words, went around as strolling exorcists. And the evil spirit, when they were trying to do this, the evil spirit said, after he had leaped on them and mastered both of these sons of Siva and prevailed against them so that they fled. You remember how many times the evil spirits fled when Christ dismissed them. But here, these sons of Siva, they fled. But what did, this, what did this evil spirit say to them? What did this spirit say? Jesus I know. Paul I know. But who are you? They were taken. They were using the name of Christ. It tells us in the 13th verse that they had sought to cast out evil spirits in the name of of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. They were taking his name in vain. We need to take that instruction, that teaching to heart. And remember how easy it is. If we're not walking rightly, if we're not meditating upon the word of God, if we're not striving to walk in the spirit, and so on. If we become careless, and so on. We can find ourselves doing something that amounts to that, that amounts to taking the name of God in vain or carelessly saying, I have vowed a vow. I have vowed a vow. We read about that. In fact, I think that I found that, that expression, vowed a vow, at least in, in the American standard, that we find it three times. Vow is found in the scriptures some 35 times, but this expression, vow to vow. And you have to look at the context in order to determine the substance of this vowing a vow. In other words, there are occasions when vowing a vow is not a bad thing. There are occasions when it is a bad thing, as we see here in the case of Absalom. But you know, you're familiar with the history of Jacob in Genesis 28 and so on, that we read how that he vowed a vow unto God. If God would be with him, he vowed a vow unto God and there was not anything wrong with that vow. He kept his vow as well as anyone could. He did not back out from it. He performed that vow as well as one can with remaining sin. But he didn't abdicate it. He didn't cast it to the ground. He didn't dismiss it. In Israel, in Numbers 21, the same thing, vow to vow. And God gave them deliverance from their enemies. And they kept the vow. They devoted the things unto God. And Hannah stands out at the beginning of 1 Samuel. 
Hannah praying for a man-child and vowing a vow unto God that if he would give her a man-child, she would devote that man-child unto him, unto God. That man-child was Samuel himself, and she did devote him. When he was weaned, she brought him back to Shiloh and presented him to Eli, a gift from God. And God gave her more children. There was nothing wrong with Jacob's vow or Hannah's vow. But Absalom here, there was definitely something wrong. We read in Leviticus 22 and verse 23 about a vow that's blemished. If an individual gives an animal in sacrifice that's blemished when he's promised a stout male animal, but he gives one that's blemished, trying to slip one in on God, it shall not be accepted. It's blemished. It's blemished. And it shall not be accepted. Absalom's vow was blemished. His sacrifice was blemished because his heart wasn't right. In the same way this individual spoken of in Leviticus, his heart was not right. Most vows today, we don't find people standing by their word, their spoken word. We don't find people being able to agree on something and having confidence in a handshake anymore. That's history. And it has been for some time. So vows today, they have to be on documents, contracts, we usually call them. And even then, those are broken. Marriage contracts, vows, and yet they're broken. Does that mean vows in themselves are no good? It does not. It means men are sinners. And they don't mean what they say. They don't even mean what they sign. We've got lawyers as the sands of the seashore in, in order to get people out of their word, in order to get people out of their contracts, in order to get people out of their marriage contracts. We've got more recently an example in some vows that some candidates have made. And they just freely get up there and say, well, I'm going to break that vow. If such and such doesn't happen, I'll break it. Well, what good was it in the first place? It wasn't any good at all. Just like some of the marriage vows that are made in this land. Somewhere like 50%, I've been told. Even like the, an example of, of the gifts of Ananias and Sapphira. They brought them to the Lord. But it was blemished because they misrepresented it. They lied to God, the Holy Spirit, and thus blemished it. Yeah, it appeared to some, but not to God, the Holy Spirit, not to the apostle who had been given the Spirit to recognize that they were lying. Anything superfluous or lacking was blemished. Ananias and Sapphira's presentation of their gift was definitely blemished because it was lacking. There are true vows. There are such a thing as true vows. But in those true vows, there are no such things 
as escape clauses. There are no such things as prenuptial agreements. You stand by your word. Your word is your bond. The scriptures teach us even in the Psalms, the righteous man is the one that will not resort to usury. He's the one that keeps his word. His word is his bond. I remember reading, and I couldn't find it again, but I think I remember the account well enough. In Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he tells about this farmer and his wife in Wales that had one cow, just one cow, but that cow was expecting. And they were praying that that calf would be all right. And when the day came for delivery, lo and behold, two calves. And they praised God. And, and the husband told the wife, we're going to dedicate one of these calves to the Lord. She said, which one? He said, oh, we don't have to do it right away. A few days later, he came walking into the kitchen and his face was down, his countenance was fallen. And his wife said, what's the matter? He said, one of the calves died. She said, which one? He said, the Lord's. His vow wasn't sincere, you understand? It was blemished. Just like Ananias and Sapphira and so many others. But here we have Absalom sounding the trumpet. And again, I, I see him as something of a prototype. Sounding the trumpet. We're going to have a revival. We're going to have a revival. We're going to set up a tent. We're going to go to Hebron. We're going to have a revival of religion here. In Ian Murray's, Ian Murray, if you're not familiar with the name, has written some fine biographies. He's the biographer of Martin Lloyd-Jones, or one of the more prominent ones. But he wrote a pamphlet called The Invitation System. Listen to what he said in this one short paragraph. A few years ago, Billy Graham was preaching in London one Sunday night. The end of his sermon at 8.30 p.m., this was early in Billy Graham's career, was immediately followed by a broadcast half hour of him singing so that he was not able to give the invitation till the broadcast ended. You realize what the invitation in these situations are, these revivals, these tent meetings, these week-long meetings that they invite people to come down the aisle, to come to the altar, they usually call it, and give their lives to Christ. And then they write down how many have been saved that night. And they count up all those numbers. But Billy Graham wasn't able to give that invitation right after the sermon because of this half hour that the, it was on radio and because of this half hour of hymn singing that was being broadcast. So the response which was then given after that, he, says the, he said the response was then disappointing. And Graham found the explanation for this in the fact that the call did not at once follow the sermon. It didn't follow the sermon right away. In other words, the pressure was off after 30 minutes had elapsed 
and the effect of the appeal was consequently diminished. They demand, they put out that call right at the end of the sermon and so on, and they call people to action. And they have these reasons. If they fail to do it according to this method and that method, that it's not going to work, and they have their excuses built in. This is the reason we didn't get all that response because of that hymn singing for a half an hour. Absalom, we're told also that he got 200 men. 200 men in their simplicity, we're told, to come to Hebron with him. These were men that were seen by the community, by Israel, by the, those in Jerusalem that were seen to be David's sympathizers and so on. But Absalom uh, talked them into going with him. They were invited by Absalom and they went. They didn't know anything about this. But here everybody's going to see these 200 that are following Absalom to Hebron. What are they going to think when Absalom has the trumpet blown and they announce Absalom is king? They're going to think that those 200 men agreed, are they not? Absalom was clever, that's a certainty. And he was deceiving. They went in their simplicity. They knew not anything. Absalom recruits these followers to give that impression. In like manner, if you read any of these materials about the invitation system, about the altar call, or whatever terms are used, you'll find out that in many cases, if not all, they have these Christian workers in the audience. They don't have them behind the stage somewhere. They have them in the audience. And when the altar call is given, these people get up and start moving forward. Now, they're going up there, and maybe some of them are doing it in their simplicity, not understanding the disguise. But what's the impression that's giving? Oh, they're following Absalom. Or in this case, oh, they're going forward. Because they've been convicted. And so others, you know, what peer pressure is, others see that. Others see movers toward the front. Others see a few hundred going forward. Wanting to be joined to Christ. Wanting to get saved. I dislike that expression. Salvation is of Jehovah. You don't get saved. God saves his people. Christ saves his people. They don't just get saved. They are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. I had that same experience when I was about 10 years old. I don't remember all the circumstances, but it was in a on a church bus going downtown Detroit to some big theater or whatever. And I remember... And the conviction was, to put it in a nutshell, if you don't do something, if you don't make a move, you're going to hell. 
fire escape salvation, you're going to hell. And I remember as a 10-year-old child up there in those seats a long way back, that usual call. Don't worry about the bus. Don't worry about the people that brought you. They'll wait. They'll wait for you. You need to come forward. And you're seeing all these workers going up there and thinking that they're all deciding for Christ. And then, of course, others have started. And was I crying? Yes, I was crying. Ten years old. I didn't want to go to hell. And I went forward. And I followed this worker as I was led to say the sinner's prayer. And my tears were somewhat dried. They stayed dried for 25 years. <laughs> and that's the downside of all this. That you think that you've been saved. You think that you're in Christ. You think that you're a Christian because of these things. Are any that go forward truly saved? Yes. Were you saved that way? I'm not saying you're not saved, but I'm saying I wasn't. And I'm saying the vast majority that went forward were not. But they're deceived into thinking that they are something that they're not. Now, I already spoke about God's sovereignty. I know that God was sovereign in that 10-year-old's life and in the 35-year-old's life later. But humanly speaking... 25 years were lost. Twenty-five years. These men followed Absalom. They went in their simplicity, we're told, or their innocence, or their naivete. They went forward. They were simple, innocent, and naive. All the more useful. All the more useful to Absalom. And again, the same thing with regard to the methodology of these so-called revivalists. There was a school in Indiana, I think, it doesn't matter where it was, and a prominent so-called revivalist that had this school he opened. And he's teaching what, what down the street they call preacher boys and what he called preacher boys at his school. You know what I'm talking about, I'm sure. But listen to the instructions that he gave these young men in his classroom about this matter. He said this, Do not reveal the closing of the sermon. When the sermon reaches a high point or a climax, then would be a good time to close abruptly. Stop the sermon in the middle if you need to. Close abruptly. Even if the sermon is not completed, he goes on, sometimes God may lead one to close prematurely in order to start the invitation from a spiritual plane. You think God's going to do that? Do you really? I don't even believe this man that was teaching this believed it, but he was saying it nonetheless. And he says, Here's the, this also prevents the unsaved from digging in digging in, so to speak. Oh, he's closing his sermon. I know what's coming. It's going to be the invitation, but I'm going to grab a hold of the arms of my chair. I'm not going to go forward. I'm not going to be like that silly little 10-year-old boy crying over there. 
I'm digging in. I'm not doing anything. I know what's coming. And this man is counseling these supposed preachers, future preachers, to do these things, to behave like that. What do these things all have in common? They're all man-centered. They're all man-centered devices. Man-centered instructions. They don't have the authority of God's word, not one word from God to support this practice. Absalom's methods like these, Absalom's methods were all from his own brain and from his own wicked heart. He was a man after his own heart. His father was a man after God's heart, but Absalom was a man after his own heart. And I fear how many there are using these methods in order to build up numbers, in order to lift themselves up and not Christ. I'm not condemning all of them. I'm not really condemning any of them. I'm just talking about the potential of these practices and the likelihood. These fundamentalist preachers are not following the leading of God. They're following the leading of, of men like Charles Grandison Finney and his methodology with his anxious bench calling people, come and sit here. You're closer to the altar. Think about hell a little more. They're using his methods, not biblical methods. The scriptures don't call upon us to invite men and women and children to come down an aisle. The scriptures call on us to invite men to come to Jesus Christ. The only mediator between God and men. The scriptures give us instruction. They tell us about God's means. God's gospel in Romans 10 in particular. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But it's sent by God. The preacher is sent by God. The message is sent by God. It's not all these tricks and methods and so on. You understand the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not man-centered. The gospel is not man-centered. It is conspicuously God-centered through Jesus Christ. It is centered not, it is not man-centered, but it is centered on the God-man. God manifested in the flesh. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. God come to save his people. God come to seek and save his people. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save. He didn't come to teach pretenders all these methods so that they can have numbers. They can profess numbers of converts. May God have mercy on the souls of men, especially that are deliberate, knowing deceivers. And may God have mercy upon the deceived like he had mercy on this one that was deceived as a child. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for the true gospel. 
And we do thank thee, O Lord God, that our life was not cut off before it pleased thee to send that true gospel to us and regenerate our hearts, the Holy Spirit himself, doing his work, the true revivalist. We thank thee in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd stand, please, for the benediction. It's from 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.